but when we love someone, that shifts all of these beliefs up, hey, up above it in the brain the later in the sequence so that they line up with the things that, that we love. And so we can actually change our character if we learn to love God and let God love us. And if we let God teach us how to love our neighbors, uh, we came to decide that it was the attachment system and uh, the social engagement system that goes on top of it. And so if all of those systems are tuned into other people, and, and uh, to do that, we have to have a loving relationship with them. Maybe they're supposed to also be tuned into God and have a loving relationship with God, such that uh, we should love God and love other people. Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from a clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 29. Hey guys, welcome back to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. I am so excited to share this episode with you. I got to have a pretty interesting chat with a neurotheologian. Have you heard of a neurotheologian before? Super cool, right? It's exactly what it sounds like. You have someone at at the intersection of the discipline of neuroscience and theology coming together. And that's the stuff that we love here on the podcast. So it's gonna get a little brainy, and I'm a brain nerd, so I'm stoked. And I'm assuming if you've been listening in, you're starting to become a bit of a brain nerd yourself, and that's part of what makes you awesome. So today we're looking at the relationship between what the scriptures say about spiritual growth and spiritual formation and how that's playing out in our brains. And joining me in this conversation is Dr. Jim Wilder. He's the neurotheologian and founder of Life Model Works, and he's been working in the intersection of psychology and spiritual formation for decades and provides a practical way forward that combines the best of spiritual formation practices and research from brain science. So Dr. Wilder shows how we can train our brains to relate to God based on joyful, mutual attachment, which leads to emotional and spiritual maturity as our identity and character are developed through our relationship with God. I know that was a mouthful, so I'll let you listen in and follow along for yourself. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jim Wilder. Hi, Dr. Wilder. It's so great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing over there in Colorado today? Well, I'm having a great day, and I'm very excited about being here with you, Brittany. (laughs) Me too. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I have so many questions. First of all, you are a neurotheologian, and I was kind of reading your background and everything, and I would love to share that with everyone else. What exactly is a neurotheologian, and what led you into this work? Well, a neurotheologian is someone who's uh, trained both in the area of neurology and neuroscience and in theology, and we look for those overlaps where what uh, the science tells us about the 
brain and how it works to make us human overlaps with what God says about what it means to be human. And in both cases, uh, we're we're working to overcome the um, sort of the natural defects in the process because uh, uh, people, for reasons that uh, Scripture refers to as the fall, um, don't develop into being the complete human being they should be. And from a neurological point of view, we have to learn to be human. And uh, so when those two things come together and says, here's what it means to to really do everything that a human being can be in a physical body, uh, that's pretty exciting. So I get to look at that overlap. I love that so much. I feel like um, we're just so in the same track because that's something that I'm super passionate about is seeing how mm-hmm. the science overlaps with the word. And it does in so many ways um, that it's actually pretty cool. So I'm curious, how did you first recognize the connections between neurology and spiritual formation? Because, um, and I'll let you share more about your book and and what you've been working on as well, because you talk about that a bit more. So I'd love to expound on that for those who are listening. Well, from uh, childhood on, I was very interested in becoming a medical researcher. Uh, studying how uh, uh, plagues went and how uh, people recovered from different things. Uh, So I had a very strong biology interest and background. Um, And then um, I encountered uh, healing as a response of prayer when I was about 19 and sort of put the two things together, like what actually happens when you're healed by prayer and uh, so then that starts combining the two disciplines. Well, then in graduate school, I met um, my first uh, neurotheologian, Dr. Lee Travis. He's one of the people who was uh, in the science group that uh, discovered and uh, developed the electroencephalograms, the EEG mm-hmm. uh, brainwave studies and stuff like that. And he was deeply into uh, neuroscience. But he had a uh, a brilliant brother-in-law who, who was bipolar, uh, manic depressive, they called him back in those days. And that was in the days before there was any kind of medication. And he was intervening uh, to help his uh, brother-in-law to live a normal life, even though he had this uh, biological disadvantage going for him. And... Uh, trying to apply what he knew about uh, being a, uh, you know, a living, working human being to somebody whose neurology wasn't running quite right for them. And I you know, first said to him, well, can you really treat your brother-in-law? He said, well, who else is going to do it? Because uh, you, know, you have to really care about somebody and to, and to help somebody who's got a sort of a reality distortion disorder they have to trust you more than they trust their own mind. And it occurred to me that this is exactly the problem that God is always facing with us as human beings. We have to trust somebody more than we trust our own mind to tell us who we are and how we should live. And that that kind of deep connection, trust relationship that uh, uh, Dr. Travis is both a scientist and as a loving brother-in-law saw as a relational connection really fascinated me in the field and 
he, you know, talked about, now I wonder how God connects with the human brain. You know, how does, how does our awareness of him fit into what's happening in the brain? And um, uh, he was one of the reticular activating system theorists at that time. But since then, we, you know, the field has moved out to, you know, I think God connects with uh, our brain in a, quite a variety of different places. Uh, there's no, like, God antenna in there someplace specifically, you know. But uh, I'm not getting ahead of myself here. No, this is great. I'm all about this. Please, I, I would actually love to know some of those areas that you guys found and in, in what the, some of those findings were. Mm-hmm. Well, the very interesting thing was that um, we began to work on traumas and we realized that traumas, um, basically psychological traumas, interrupted people's development of who they were meant to be. So some part of your identity always got crumpled. In those days, it was mostly working on human sexuality coming out of the 60s, you know, the sexual revolution and everything like that. We discovered that you know a lot of people weren't enjoying their sexuality, uh, and then come to find out that the people who weren't were by and large people who'd been targeted and abused in the area of their sexuality, and so it was now under the control of some kind of fear and didn't grow right. Well, um, when we were looking at at that, um, we found that. Uh, even when people got healed, they needed to keep, you know, sort of pick up where their development had left off. And uh, somewhere about in the 1990s, uh, the insurance company discovered that it cost about $15 million uh, in the 1990s dollars to help somebody who'd been severely sexually abused as a child to recover. And so they stopped covering those services. Wow. <clears throat> too expensive. And I looked at the $15 million and I realized it's mostly hiring a community to be a sort of like a therapeutic community to do what families should have done. And, um, you know, to sort of replace a function, hire an extended family, you might say. And then I realized that when God talks about the church, he sort of says we should relate to each other as a new and extremely loving and healthy extended family. So churches should, if they're doing what they're supposed to do, be doing what this $15 million worth of hiring a therapeutic family was doing. But churches weren't doing it. So now we've got three components there. We've got your brain having to learn how to be human, We've got um, the, uh, you know, who's going to guide this this healing process is a whole healing component. But then there's a, how do I really go about being a human being in community that has to somehow come from the community side? And that seemed to be what was missing from most uh, therapeutic arrangements. So those three ingredients uh, really were very, very formative in uh, what then became the discovery of Alan Shore from, um, he's a, was a researcher over at UCLA. Um, you probably know about that organization. Bruins. I have to shout out. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Well, Dr. Shore, <clears throat> also known sometimes as the American Bowlby attachment theorist, um, said that, you know, really dug deeply into how does the brain develop into a human being. And it turns out to be around this loving attachment process. And so getting back to your original question, which probably has been lost in the listener's mind by now, and that is what part of the brain is involved, uh, we came to decide that it was the attachment system and uh, the social engagement system that grows on top of it, and primarily on the right side of the brain, which develops first, uh, starting with the thalamus going up through the cingulate cortex. It does mutual mind, helps us understand other people enough to become like them and ultimately turns into the development of the right prefrontal cortex that uh, is a part of the brain that's in charge of acting like me. Mm. So if all of those systems are tuned into other people, uh, and uh, to do that, we have to have a loving relationship with them, maybe they're supposed to also be tuned into God and have a loving relationship with God, such that uh, we should love God and love other people. And it's, I mean, it's so beautiful how that comes back to what Jesus said were the top two commandments, you know, uh, were the greatest mm-hmm. commandments, love God, love people, and how that is affirmed in our brain, you know, um, I think is super cool how, again, the faith and the science that, lines up. Mm-hmm. What turns out to be most important for the brain science happens to be at the top of the list of what uh, Scripture tells us to and what Jesus was all about. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're going to get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing. But I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the sign-up process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. 
And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Right, right. Okay, so I hope everyone got that. <laughs> Loved, you know, if nothing else, I mean, obviously we want to do our best in our in all of our spiritual formation, but loving God and loving people. Uh, let's start there, at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yes. And so that was all. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, you attest that biblical evidence and modern brain science show that, you know, our character is shaped more by whom we love than what we believe. And I think that's so interesting. I was wondering if you could expound on this as well and what the implications of these findings mean. Yes, well, the um, going back to the uh, the attachment system in the brain, if what we mean by love is attachment, um, the part of our brain that develops our character is based on attachment. And what the Bible means by love is what we mean by attachment. And that's most of what my book is about. We're doing a uh, a comparison of what what the Bible means by attachment, love, do they fit together? And the answer, as far as I'm concerned, it comes up a very strong yes. Uh, the characteristics of attachment, and that is it'll hold through good and bad experiences. It uh, gives you freedom. Uh, it uh, is built on joy. Um, it's uh, something that's permanent. It's very individualized. So, uh, an attachment is very, very specific to one other living being. All of those characteristics um, fit for what the Bible means by love. And if if that's the case, then uh, our character system in our brain, the part that thinks of it as, as me and here's what I value, mm-hmm. is formed by interacting with mirror neurons, uh, interacting with and connecting with people that we love and see as our people. Mm. Uh, that's central to how your brain forms character. Now, in the um, whole uh, Western um, Enlightenment happened, we got very excited about ideas and beliefs. And so in the last 500 years, um, the uh, whole idea of what you believe has gotten to be extremely important. Uh, And then if we believe the right things, then we understand truths, and we understand truths will make the right choices. The only problem is that from a neurological point of view, the will and choice is way, way out on the cortex. It's one of the last places the brain gets around to. Hmm. And so character has already given us our, you know, our, our, uh, our personal deep response. So if, um, I see somebody and, uh, I dislike them for some reason that, first reaction of dislike 
will pop right up long before my character uh, has any choice of, right. you know, how am I going to think about it? And so Dallas Willard used to say, you know, that we spend a lot of time on sin management. We're trying to manage our sinful responses rather than change character. Mm. Um, and so then, since the answer of the Enlightenment is, well, we got to get better beliefs, then a lot of, you know, we got to uh, listen to good sermons, we got to study right things, we got to make sure we get all of the truths right in order. But all of us have met somebody who seems to be right about everything, but is a little obnoxious about it. Uh, you know, <laughs> their character hasn't caught up with everything they believe, you know. Right. But when we love someone, that shifts all of these beliefs up up above it in the brain the later in the sequence so that they line up with the things that, that we love. And so we can actually change our character if we learn to love God and let God love us. And if we let God teach us how to love our neighbors, which would at least bring us up to the standard that pagans are supposed to be at, uh, according to Jesus. <laughs> and then if we can learn to love our enemies, the people our brain say, says, um, you know, we don't like them. They're not our kind of people. They're not on our side. Well, God doesn't see it that way, right? Right. And so if we learn to see them the way that God sees them, all of a sudden our basic response is, oh, those are God's friends over there. Uh, they may not like God yet, but that doesn't matter because God wants to be a friend to them, and so uh, so do I. Uh, it's just very, very fundamental to our character. But the problem here is twofold. One is we have to somehow connect with God and see how he sees. So there's this God part of it. Um, the, otherwise, we just see everybody the way humans do. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of it is, unless we practice that with other human beings, our brain doesn't learn it. So something in us has to see what God sees. God has to be an active element. And something about us has to practice that with other people, or our brain doesn't learn it, and it doesn't become character. So there's this double-pronged approach, right? We have to Mm -hmm. be doing this mutual mind with God, thinking along with God, but if we don't practice it with human beings, our character doesn't change. And so typically we have Christians now split into two two groups. One is very busy practicing good things with other human beings, not listening to God a whole lot. And then we have the pietist tradition that's off listening to God, but not really doing too much with human beings. So really what I'm very strongly recommending based on you know the outcome of, of all I've studied is that we need to have God as an active presence and we need to practice what God sees with human beings or we don't change our character. Wow, you're saying so many powerful things here um, and a lot of things that I feel like have been intrinsic convictions but maybe not mm-hmm. always being able to articulate it or know exactly the science behind it, but just this feeling of what basically relationship versus legalism for one, just that, you know, yeah. um, being led mm-hmm. the difference between being led by devotion and being led by religion, quote unquote, and how 
that devotion mm-hmm. more so changes our character and how those relation that relationship component is what really changes people's character first because like you said our character is more shaped by whom and what we love than necessarily all the things that are on our list to believe you know um Right, and I just that, that, mer- that merely controls our character if it, if it hasn't been changed. Right, and but it's not necessarily like this wholehearted transformation. Um, like you said, mm-hmm. it's just behavior modification, and I think that just ties so much into the idea of sanctification, which is that you know um, you don't get perfect and come to God. You know, you you come as you are, and you learn to know Him and. Um, and, and, and as well as in, in having him in your life and you're, you're growing and he's changing you from the inside out. And it starts from this curious relationship, um, not this set of rules. And I think it's so interesting you're saying that that is exactly the sequence of how the brain processes things and helps develop our character. Mm-hmm. So you're saying... Yeah, you would think if you uh, read the Bible that Whoever designed the brain also wrote the Bible because the sequences <laughs> and values fit together so much. So you're telling me that going online or going to someone and just throwing a bunch of scripture at them is not going to work. <laughs> uh, it's not going to change your character, I'll tell you that much. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's not really going to reveal the character of Jesus in us either. Exactly. If not in the brain, then probably not so much spiritual in spiritual maturity. Um, with all exactly. of with all of that being said, because I feel like I could ask so many questions mm. just with that part. But what what are some of the most common mistakes that Christians are making as they engage in spiritual disciplines? In light of these, in light of um, in light of these findings, in light of I mean, kind of this basic sort of principle and understanding in a way of how we change and how we impact others. Yes. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, and it's, it's almost gender specific. Hmm. Um, when, uh, you listen to, uh, the spiritual disciplines as they're described by by men, mm-hmm. uh, there's a tendency to turn them into procedures. Right. And uh, these procedures are, um, um, well, as, as uh, one of my colleagues calls it, they're humility drills. They're things that help Take uh, away the stuff that gets in God's way, you know, the things that keep us from having enough time for God there. They don't actually build a relationship with God. They they just make room for it. It's like cutting down all the trees so there's room for a house. Mm. But just cutting down the trees by themselves makes sort of an ugly spot on the ground, you know, that's just, you know, uh, I'm fasting. Okay, well, that's you know, in large part, starts out as a miserable day, right? (laughs) In solitude, you know, we're just making this space. Uh, And then then it's sort of mysterious, like God will do something if we make some space. In other words, it's true that 
you know. Yeah. That it works that way. But a lot of the the women who've been more on the mystical side of the church, uh, like Saint Clair, who uh, talked primarily about uh, attachment. It's who you love the most uh, that fills that space. Or um, Saint uh, Teresa of Avila. Uh, they were again very much focused on the nature of the relationship with God that helped you discover that in spite of all of your uh, in, um, imperfections, that you were someone that God loved, and, and it was this relationship then that you discovered in the space created. Uh, and so their focus has tended to be more on the developing of a love relationship with God and almost a downplaying of the uh, asceticism. It's not, it's not so much what you don't do as who you invite into the space that's created. Hmm. Um, now, both, both people, both men and women, when they talk about it, end up saying some of each of that, you see. But I think the, the, historically in the church, the women have done a better job of articulating the relational nature of what happens uh, mm-hmm. And the uh, men have done more articulating the asceticism of it. So first mistake Christians make is they uh, kind of view this as a process. If I if I do this process, um, uh, you know, it'll somehow make the mystery of spiritual life happen. And and it's not really so much a process. It's you're making room for a process, but the process is actually a relationship. It's like. Uh, somewhere in there, we must uh, discover that God delights in us, and so God has to be an active part of that. The, the second thing is that the spiritual disciplines, there's a tendency to uh, give them value on their own. If it's some, there's something, let's say, extra spiritual about fasting. So the more I fast, the more spiritual I am. Uh, and, um, you know, that that is getting the, the, the uh, field reversed, uh, you know, so you're looking at the, at the background instead of the, the foreground. It's not, there's nothing spiritual about fasting. Uh, it's just that when we fast, we make room for something spiritual to grow. Mm. And then what I would say is the, the standard, most, uh, common mistake reason why spiritual disciplines don't work sometimes, or they don't work for certain people is that we enter it with our brain's relational circuits off. So the the very part of us that would enter into relationship, all those social engagement systems uh, are off. Uh, there are uh, lots of reasons why that can be. It can shut off at lots of different levels. But basically, we're not, we're not uh, present in the moment that we're in uh, looking for... Uh, you know, someone who's personally significant to us. So, um, you know, a difference between Ameri- uh, the uh, Christian meditation, for instance, and the Buddhist meditation is that uh, the Buddhist meditation is more removing any attachments that's clearing space, whereas Christian meditation is trying to focus on what thoughts are we sharing with God. It's, uh, you know, we're connecting with somebody rather than just, uh, you know, sort of an disconnecting from the rest of the world. Mm. Now, understandably, we have to do a little of each, right? But the focus shifts into this, who am I connecting with? What does what thoughts are entering my mind 
and the uh, that might come from God. And the problem with our relational circuits off is that uh, a thought might enter our mind that comes from God that without a relational connection, our brain doesn't give it any importance. It's like, oh, a thought drifted through. And so we don't feel the meaning of it. I mean, most of us have had, <laughs> had this rude experience of we're in a bad mood and someone tells us a Bible verse and it just makes us matter. <laughs> well, you know. It's like dissonance. Do whatever. Yeah. Because even though there's content from God there with our relational circuits off because we're mad at the world, uh, we don't. it doesn't feel like wow, I'm understood and that's who I need to be. It feels like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to fight with you right now. So uh, until we're, and, and what makes us connect with God is really a sense of gratitude. We have to enter his presence with thanksgiving in our heart, scripture says. So when we're grateful to God, we can think of any time in our life that we, he, he was good to us, he was kind to us. Our mind then sets up to listen for what he might be telling us now that uh, would be good for us to listen to. And so once you enter into that space, your brain starts to give attention and importance to the things that, thoughts that might be coming from God. Um, uh, which brings me to one final little observation, and mm-hmm. that is that this, in this mutual mind state with God, your brain can't tell whether it's me thinking or whether it's uh, the other person thinking. So, uh, if I look at somebody and we both smile, we feel like you made me smile, and the other person said, no, you made me smile, because we made us smile together. Mm-hmm. It was a, an us smile. And many of the thoughts that we think of with God are us thoughts. It's us thinking with God, what God's thinking right now. And it's very hard to distinguish them um, from our own thoughts. Uh, uh, some we Jane Willard once said that uh, God said there, you're expecting me to talk in my cathedral voice. <laughs> uh, I'm, think- I'm talking to you with shared thoughts, you see. We're thinking through this together. Come let us reason together. Let us think together. Let's rethink the whole thing, says the Lord. Then we're going to have one mind about this. The mind that's in me will be in you. And we're going to think together. And so people then become nervous. Is this really God thinking? Because I'm not sure it could be me. Mm-hmm. But isn't what God wants us to do is to start thinking the way he does? Isn't that like the perfect outcome? Right. Seeing things the way he sees them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more we think and see things the way he does, this is spiritual transformation. But it's also much harder to tell who's thinking because we're doing it together. Yeah. And I think that's... Uh, uh, you know, Christians expect this external voice as opposed to thinking together. That's so interesting, and um, and just inter- when I'm thinking, I'm thinking more personally now about how, I mean, just tell telltale signs on this, just that it it would obviously confirm with the word, right? Like mm-hmm. it wouldn't be anything right. that's not in the word, and um, so if it's something that's way out there, it's probably probably not God. <laughs> Um, if it's very right. misaligned. And, and also it'll confirm with other people who are listening to God will also, it'll resonate with them. They'll go, yeah, that, that sounds like what he would say. So we have, uh, for quick tests, first of all, it should feel 
peaceful or shalom-like. That is, it really makes sense of everything. Uh, you, know, you know, when you hear it, it's like, oh, that is really true. Um, if it doesn't pass that test, it's not God. It doesn't have good God, God content. If other people who listen to God listen to it and go, I don't hear any God in that. Uh, it's not got good God content, and then you put that up against uh, the scriptural tradition and say, is this what God has always told us? And if it's not there, once again, uh, you know, your thoughts are not uh, very low in God content, let's put it that way. Right. It makes me think of the verse, like, a way seems right to a man, but... It's mm-hmm. just not always the case. And that is the beauty of having community and his word together um, to mm-hmm. be able to to be able to hold accountable and affirm that. And, and speaking of with everything that you're saying with the science, uh, with how we lead into spiritual discipline relationally first with devotion first, that actually leads to true transformation of our hearts, our minds, our souls, our character, um, rather than this legalistic hitch over the head with verses and behavior modification, which is not the sequence of how the brain works, like what you're saying. Um, what would yeah. it look like if a church body engaged in this work of retraining how our brains relate to God? Like what what would that look like for the church as a whole if we really engaged in this way? Well, I've left a, uh, a couple of um important elements out of what I've been talking about, which we would need to add right in right here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the things that um, back in the mid-1990s when we were developing this, we had people who were just not recovering uh, for all of the healing they got in, and we knew they were getting something from community, mm-hmm. but we didn't know what. Um and that's when we actually encountered the uh, the brain skills that uh, form identity that uh, Dr. Sher was talking about out of UCLA. But what he said about them was that in order for it to touch, change your character, it had to be uh, a joyful relationship. Mm. It was going to make a change in the right. Someone enjoyed, he said, is relational. It's the basic ingredient of brain growth and development. Uh, someone has to be glad to be with you. Mm. And uh, and when you do that, he said, the other side of it is that it always forms a permanent attachment. So mm. uh, the first shift that we would have to have in church is that church should have be a high-joy environment. Now, I thought to myself, well, I've heard the word joy in Christianity, but is it really important? I don't know. So I went to look and see if joy is in the scripture. And then when I looked, I found it everywhere. Right. Then, it's everywhere. Yeah. Jesus, <laughs> yeah. And then when Jesus was in the, in the upper room for his uh, uh, upper room discourse, right, just before he was crucified, he said, uh, these words I have spoken to you that my joy would be in you. Mm. And your joy might be the fullest joy possible. Um, and when he gives that as the ultimate reason for his teaching, 
because uh, this is really the high point. But if you want to summarize why he why he teaches what he teaches, it's so that there would be extremely high joy. I thought to myself, well, that's exactly what the brain would say you need to develop a whole new character. Mm-hmm. But why have I not seen that in church? Why am I now, you know, I've got a degree in theology, I'm an ordained minister and a, a licensed psychologist, and nothing in psychology has ever told me joy is important, and I certainly haven't seen that as central to church. So what would it take for us to actually have a really strong joy to be together? Uh, and that's something I've never really seen churches develop. Now, the worship movement came along and said, we need to increase our joy to be with God. That was very good. Mm. But it, at the same time, uh, decreased the amount of joy we uh, we have with each other. We just see each other as sort of expendable instead of permanent. And joy builds permanent relationships of permanent people. Once we start connecting joyfully with other people, we simply just can't leave them very well. Yeah. Uh, and so this building for permanence, uh, building joy would have to become central to a church. And then instead of being told what to believe about God, we would also have to practice together. Let's let's hear what God has to say about that. So the, the characteristic about families that, that don't function well and people with mental uh, issues, uh, mental illness problems, is they live in low-joy environments. And somehow... We have to reach into what started as low joy and say, we're going to be glad to be with you, not because you have a malfunction, but because there's something of great value in you that has to be discovered and built up and rejoiced around so that it becomes stronger and um, the things that are going wrong in your mind and in your relationships become lesser and lesser. It's, it's building that up that would become central to church. So. Yeah. They're very interesting to me that a, a group in uh, Ecuador, Guayaquil, actually, out on the coast, very poor town, the youth in that church discovered that if they talked to God and built joy with God, he would guide them through their day. And they would see things and then tell people, you know, their neighbors were fighting and with each other. And they said, oh, come with us. We go and talk to God about how we'll get joy in the places where we're having fights. They bring the neighbors in, they talk with God, they learn together what God had to say about it. Now, none of these people had sophisticated skills of any kind of counseling, but they knew that we should be joyful people, and if you haven't got it, we're going to be glad to be with you and bring you into the presence of our God where we'll sit together until we hear from him how to build more joy in this situation. It's amazing the differences that the, this, these young people uh, began to make in their neighborhood down there in Guayaquil. I think that's a good picture of what the church looks like. That's so interesting to me because I'm hearing what you're saying and then in my mind I'm also contrasting the different approaches that I've seen to, you know, spiritual discipline and faith and um, connecting with others uh, with the scriptures Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And I see, you know, on one side, you see a lot of fear and shame driven um, 
kind of, yeah, fear and shame driven messages right. uh, to conversion mm-hmm. and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, and kind of that legalism to, to scripture and theology and what have you. And I get it. Like theology is very important. The truth is very important. Um, we, we do want to mm-hmm. get those things right. Um, but I love what you're saying about how there is this there is this kind of primary step of, of relationship of actual of, of building a a perfect love in a way first and when I think of mm-hmm. perfect love in scripture it says that perfect love casts out fear you know so yep. um, so just I love this this what you're saying about bringing the importance of bringing joy in uh and how that even affects our brain and spiritual development and character and in our devotion and how that is such how important that is you know um Mm -hmm. and uh thank you so much for sharing that um because like you said a lot of times you don't hear a lot about how important it is to interweave joy into all of this. It's more so about getting everything right, you know? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that's been our method, you see. If we believe everything right, we should then be able to just make some choices and it'll all work. And what's been discouraging Christians for quite a while is that it doesn't seem to work all that well. Uh, right. And. Part of, part of that is because we didn't start with building the joyful relationship and then use these truths to test and see if we've still got some flaws in it. Because, uh, you know, the truth does test us for things that still need to be worked on and developed, and, and heaven knows we'll have those. Oh, absolutely. And this is something that for me was very evident when I when I... I'm explaining my faith to others about how it comes from a place of devotion, you know, and it's not these, you know, it's not this legalistic religion. It's, it's devotion. Um, so Mm -hmm. super cool. And then I don't know, I just think about how, when, when I see those who, you know, grew up in theology and in religion and legalism, that was very fear-based. That was very shame-based it's almost like their mm-hmm. brain rejects it more. Like their brain rejects it more and they go in the total opposite direction. And like you said, and now that relationship is missing. And then when you don't have that relational element, it's it's hard to make that connection um, with that gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there, is within, there is within Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, almost an anti-identity theology. That Interesting. Says, Whoever you are, I don't know, but it's bad. Mm. And if we could just get rid of you and let Jesus live, uh, everything would be fine. Hmm. Um, and so the, this idea of you know trying to find everything that's wrong with me and cast it out um, will somehow make me a good Christian just hasn't been... It hasn't been joyful, for one thing, and it hasn't produced the kind of character we're looking for, whereas if we let Jesus in, and uh, you know, I often tell people, well, what we really need to learn to do is to share our face with Jesus. So every time someone looks at our face, they see Jesus looking out our eyes at them. And what will what will those eyes be telling them? What will that face be telling them? Other than you know, I came for you. I'm looking for you. I'm, I want relationship with you. I want to connect with you. And, and you know, and if we're if we're part of that because we're thinking with him, uh, wow, that does change the 
puts a new face on Christianity, I'd say. Wow. Yes. Wow. So much of what you're saying is so beautiful and so revelational, I think so confirming for when it, what many of us know to be true in, in our heart, in our, in our spirit. Um, but to have that evidence. Well, you know, Brittany, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's what most people say. You've put words to what I always, always knew. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about the brain science. It puts words to what we always knew was true. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I could ask a million more questions around tying down this whole idea, but I want listeners to go ahead and check out your book and read more for themselves. So where can where can anyone find your current book? It's called Renovated, right? God, Dallas Willard, and the yes. Church That Transforms, and how can they stay connected with you and the work that you're currently doing? Well, we have a website called Life Model Works uh, because what uh, we've tried to develop here from all these different disciplines is a model of what your life should look like from birth to death um, uh, in all stages. If you were fully alive, it's the kind of person God wants you to be. And so through Life Model Works, we try to uh, uh, make uh, people aware of uh, what's developing, what materials we've come up with. Um, we're going to have a, a book coming out in August uh, 4th, I believe, from Moody Press called The Other Half of Church, hmm. which is answering the question that you you had in the background, what would a church look like if if we included the relational half of our of our mind and the relational half of the of the message of the, of God's transformation into the way we live in church, and so uh, Michael um, Hendricks and I are, are uh, have been working on that. He's uh, been a spiritual formation pastor in, in a large church, and so uh, we're continuing to make this discussion of different people. We've got a book coming out on how that look in the workplace and stuff like that. So welcome people to become part of this process of of figuring out what the life of Christ would look like lived out by real humans with real brains uh, in the real world. And uh, yeah, lifemodelworks.org is the place to go and uh, sort of connect the dots. Well, I cannot wait for that. And um, all of your links are going to be in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to look into all of that and just explore a little bit more of our conversation or a lot more of our conversation today. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Wilder, for your time and for for sharing all these gems with us. I know that it's going to be a very special conversation and very confirming for what a lot of us have felt. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, let me just affirm the life of Christ and the warmth and joy that's in you. <laughs> thank um, you. And I, I really like the mission that you're about there, bringing the love of God and people together in the uh, lives so that uh, we become who we're meant to be and so bless you and what you're doing thank you i love that i'm gonna have to change my entire bio now to everything you just said (laughs) (laughs) thanks guys for tuning in yeah thanks guys for tuning in until next time